Welcome back. This is the Flat Out RC Podcast, Episode 3. My name's Andrew Sill. Thanks for joining me once again. Look to all those people that have been listening to this podcast. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe. If it's your first one, subscribe. And, of course, if it's your first one, what are we all about? We're all about the hobby of aero modeling. We're talking about flying model aircraft, whether it be helis, drones, or planes. Now, got a jam-packed episode for you this week. I uh, a, got a good interview coming up with David Law, uh, a scale aero modeler from down here in Victoria. Uh, but before I get into that, let's just have a chat about a few other things. Uh, starting with, it's building season, really. Building season, we always equate building season to sort of a winter pastime when it's the weather's not so great. So we sit in our sheds, but due to this uh, coronavirus, we're all stuck at home. And I'll tell you what, everybody that I know in the hobby is actually building something. And I'm going to be honest here. I don't really enjoy building at this stage in my life. I'm in my mid-40s. I've got a young family. I've got my own business. So I've got a lot of things that you know keep me occupied, really. And finding the time to build is just a challenge. So it almost becomes a bit of a burden and a bit of a chore. But I have been building or well, finishing off some aircraft. So I've finished off a 3D hobby shop. 104 inch slick, 120cc aerobatic plane, and I've just finished off another 3D hobby shop plane, an extra 108 inch extra, which is running a big DA120 up front. And I've finally got those planes going after many, many years. So glad to have them ready to go once we can go flying again. Uh, I'm, this upcoming weekend, I'll be working on my jet. I've got a turbine jet that I picked up from a friend, and I uh, just got to do the radio setup, uh, reinstall the radio, you know, the receiver, and few other bits and bobs and then do the, the radio setup. So hoping to have that done. And so there's not much left for me to finish in my hangar. Uh, and I'm actually you know, looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to going flying, definitely. I'm having withdrawals. But uh, just building at the moment in me is just not working out well. And I'll tell you what I'm finding. I don't know about you people out there. Uh, a day out in the shed working on the plane is really tiring. It could just be me. I don't know. But my legs ache. And I, I just did it last Saturday and Sunday all day. And uh, gee, it was it was tough going, but I got it done. Uh, that And I suppose the thing that I do enjoy is that feeling of accomplishment. When you look back, that motor's running, everything's working, you're ready to fly it. It, it does give you that good feeling. I think that's why we keep on keep on going. Now, it's funny, I've got David Law coming up. He's a great builder. So he's, he's sort of the opposite to me. Well, no, he's not. He loves flying as well. But, uh, but uh, yeah. Finding time is just my biggest challenge at this stage of my life. But I can't wait until I am retired. People think I'm crazy, but I actually always saw model flying as my retirement hobby, but I brought it forward about 25 years, or more than that, actually, 30 years. But uh, because I think it's just such a great retirement hobby. It just keeps you uh, mentally active, socially active, physically active, which I think is excellent. And uh, so when I'm older, I think I can see myself definitely getting into some kits. You know, like... There's a, a, a model on my bucket list, which is the Super Chipmunk. I used to love them when I was a kid. The Super Chipmunks and Decathlons. And uh, the Super Chipmunk, I'm falling in love with it again, but I want a big one. I want like 100 cc. And so I've been, there are some kits available, and uh, but it'll be a lot of work and I'm just not up to it at this stage. So onwards and upwards. Now, product news. 
Well, there's not a lot happening. Uh, a lot of not a lot of new products that really of uh, of note that we want to talk about at this stage. But I do want to bring attention to uh, a line of products that is quite apt at the moment since a lot of us are building, and that is servos. And it's from a brand called Dual Sky. Now, I I know the owner of the Dual Sky factory over in China, Orville Sheen, great bloke, and he's not paying me to say anything. He doesn't even know that I'm actually talking about his servos. But the reason why I bring them up is. I'm I'm using a fair few of them, and they've been really good. So if if you live in Australia at the moment, our exchange rate is not that great, and so things are costing us a fair bit of money. In the, uh, we're losing the exchange rate that US dollar to the Aussie dollar. So a lot of products are quite expensive at the moment, and just it's hard to to, to justify paying one hundred and thirty dollars for a mid sized servo kind of thing. You know, a decent servo. We're talking about quality servos here, but Dual Sky is one of those brands that uh, a Chinese company, but really punching above their weight, really trying to build good quality gear. Now, I do have a video on YouTube that shows how the Dual Sky motors are made, electric motors, because they, they make uh, electric motors, batteries, basically electric components is their thing, ESCs. Now, they've branched out in the past few years, I think it is, into servos. And, I've spoken to Orville about them, and basically somebody else manufactures the, the you know the guts of the servo, except for the motor. So a dual sky motor, brushless motor, is going into these servos. So Orville's very particular. He's he's a great hobbyist. He lives for flying. He flies jets. He flies aerobatic planes. You know, I've seen his house that he has. His what he calls his weekend house, which is basically purchased just to house his model gear and building and all that kind of stuff. So you wouldn't find a guy that's more into the hobby than, than Orville. So these servos, he's tested them extensively and I started using some on the past 12 months. I put them in that 30cc ultra stick that you saw in the Flatout RC magazine. And the reason why I've, I, I want to talk to you about Dual Sky is they're great value for money. We're talking about digital metal gear servos here. Some even have titanium gears. We're talking about high voltage capable servos um, that are affordable. Now, they're not the cheapest servos, as I said, but they're, they're in the middle of the range. But bang for buck, they're great. So you, what you get is, I'm using some of their servos that are um, can handle high voltage, put out 18 kilos of torque, and you get really fast response times as well. So they're not slow servos. So we're getting, I always say with servos, you're paying for two things. You're either paying for speed or you're paying for torque. If you want to pay for the speed and torque, then you pay a lot of money. Now, that's when a servo becomes more expensive. With the dual skies, I'm finding that you get really good torque and you get really good speed at a, at a reasonable price. Um, a lot of their higher grunty servos are all aluminium case, which helps with heat dissipation. So I'm using some of their models uh, in the 18 kilo versions in the stick, and they've been really, really good. Uh, and I'm also using their mid-size servo that they have. It's a 10 kilo servo. Now, just about that servo, and generally what I find across the Dual Sky range is that if you compare it to some of the other brands that are out there, they're actually giving you a bit more bang for your buck as far as speed and torque. So the comparable um, version of this servo that I've used, the Dual Sky mid-size servo, the 10 kilo servo, other brands uh, at the same size of servo is offering sort of like six to seven kilos of torque. So uh, definitely a brand to consider, the Dual Sky range of servos. Now, they are brought in by uh, 
the guys over to Riley Model, Model Products. So you can grab them from all hobby stores really around the country. Uh, you can purchase them from Model Flight, uh, Albury RC could get them for you, uh, Desert Aircraft Australia could probably get them for you, you name it. Any of your, your, your good shops out there can access these dual sky servos and generally there's pretty good stocks of them in the country as well there are 25 tooth splines so uh similar to i think a futaba arm um and again i haven't had too many troubles trying to find additional arms really for them but uh definitely take a look we're talking about great quality good performance at a, at a good price uh take a look dual sky servos <laughs> Now to our special guest. Today's guest on the Flat Out RC podcast is none other than David Law. David Law is a gentleman that's been around, especially in the Victorian hobby scene, for many, many years. He started out uh, at a very young age in the hobby. And what you'll see is his passion for building. He's very involved in the scale competition movement here in Victoria, has competed in international competitions at world championship level, of many, many times, like um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was a lot, and and not just turned up. We're talking about you know top ten kind of finishes, even within top five, even top static judges. I think back in two thousand fourteen. So David Law is a, 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 this this interview is really, really enthralling, uh, and it's great to hear David's story. So let's get into it. This is my interview with David Law. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me. No problems at all. Now, David, you are quite a known aero modeler, especially in the uh, Victorian modeling scene. Where did it all start for you? I was born with a love of aviation, um, and I think it's it stemmed from there. Um, being a young kid with no ability to jump into a full-size aircraft, uh, I turned very quickly to modeling. Um I've always been um, artistic and creative with my hands, so I um, I suppose the um, the modelling side of things came fairly easy to me, um, and um, yeah, I, I'm just creative, and um, that's what I loved about it. And what was it? What was your start? Was it you know like? Uh free flight or control line what was your entry first entry into the hobby okay my first entry would have been um you used to be able to buy a little balsa uh, i think they'll um press cut balsa rubber band kits and i would have started with building those um and then moving on from there um it was into control line with um i think there were there were these cox 049 plastic control line kits available i sort of got involved in those for a while and um, they bored me very quickly and um, started making a few of my own creations so um it, it was it was a combination of that and plastic model kits and that type of thing so you're telling me that you started making your own control line designs and building them, or was it radio control? No, that, well, I started with my own. All I ever wanted to do was build World War Two and World War One aircraft. So, like my own little designs, I would, you know, I would, ha- I would have pictures or drawings, and I would make a little aircraft that I felt looked right, and um, chuck an engine on the front, and um, and turn it into a control line. Um, and, th- and then I suppose my early days of radio control, 
anybody who struggled to teach me radio control flying um, always had a battle to keep me on a trainer. I was always wanting to turn that trainer into something that looked like a, a World War Two or a World War One aircraft and making my own little little mock-ups of things before I got seriously into scale. And where were you flying at this stage in those early days? Um, in the very early days, I would, <laughs> like any young kid, any park I could go to, I would I would give it a crack. Um, the first club I was officially in was the Doncaster Aero Club. Um, and I was very fortunate to meet a man called Cliff McIver, who I think took me under his wing and sort of gave me direction and, and the good advice I needed as a young kid. Um, there was also another gentleman I met at the Doncaster Aero Club called Frank Bennett. And, um, you know, at the age of probably 12 he would he would have me over in his workshop and he was he was a, an old school builder did a lot of free flight stuff and um, dope and tissue dope and silk banana oiling all that type of thing and as much as I didn't get involved in the free flight world um, I think he gave me the basis of some some good techniques and understanding and um, and that's helped me throughout my um, modeling career well you are known as a master builder um, and it seems like you're always building something, uh, yep. and it's, I didn't know that you, from a young age you had that that in you. So I thank you. I've learned something new about you. Um, so yep. you start to get pretty serious about your scale build. Sort of what era? When did that sort of come about? Look, I um, I would have been fifteen, sixteen when I really started getting into scale and wanting to fly competition and, and scale stuff um my my very first sort of official scale model was a, a top flight thunderbolt which was a kit and would have been about um, a 60 inch wingspan and about 60 size engine um cliff mcciver introduced me to brian taylor plans and um I, to this day i swear by a brian taylor plan it's um he's a uk well-known modeler and designer of aircraft and um, it has given me the grounding I still use in scale on on my basic layout for a construction moving forward and um, so my my second model would have been a Brian Taylor Thunderbolt and then I pretty much went through the range of most of the Brian Taylor plans and built as as many of them as I could. Um, there'd only be a couple of his aircraft that I probably haven't built, and and then moving into later years as models got bigger, I, I would take his um, Brian Taylor plans and and scale them up, and um, and by this stage I was sort of adding my own version of how I wanted to do things into the mix, um, which has sort of led me into where where I am today. But uh, yeah, I, I would have been fifteen or sixteen when I started getting seriously into scale and, and wanting to to be competitive with it so let's fast forward a bit because you have been very successful in the scale sort of competition arena and we'll, we'll get to one of your signature planes shortly but uh what is actually involved in a scale competition scale competition can be as simple as get a scale model and fly in flying only scale which means you're only being judged um, for your flying ability or as complex as um, F4C where it's, you know, you, you get a, you get points for absolutely everything you do. Um, so the world now caters 
for so many different levels of, of scale that anybody can be involved um, from te- team building to um, buying a model that you haven't built right through to doing a little bit of building or a little bit of changing on, on something pre-purchased or an ARF um, through to the, you know, the, you know, there's, there's um, short kits and there's laser cut kits and, and, building off a plan and then there's people, um, you know, a few of us like me that go through the painstaking task of, of designing and, and building your own. Um, I suppose one of my bigger, biggest frustrations in scale is um, the fact that there are so many classes that people could could enter honestly, um, but there's, there's people out there that choose to take a model that someone else has built to a to a high level and then want to enter it in, in, in a, let's say, an F4C competition and claim it as their own. And I, um, I, I struggle with that one. I really do. I think if you're going to be in, in, a, in a competition of any type, there's a rule book. Read the rule book, stick by the rules and be proud of what you can do. Don't pretend to do something you can't. And if you want to learn how to do it yourself, ask the right people. Attach yourself to someone that's better than you and learn from them. So in other words, you need to build the model and fly the model, not I bought it from somebody else that built most of it, maybe that did a few tweaks and then just flew it? You can do that, but you enter it in a class that caters for that. Yeah. Um, so there are enough classes out there that you could do every everything you could think of in scale. You could you could buy something someone else has built, do a few tweaks, and you could enter it in, in a class. There'd be a class available for you. But what I'm saying is don't buy it do a few tweaks and then write on a declaration you've built the whole thing from scratch and compete with it because there are always people that know and it's not fair on the guys that try and do it honestly no i agree now the the scale competition scene in australia what does that look like at the moment look i'm mainly involved in victoria um to say what the scale competition scene look like in australia i'd like to first say that scale in Australia and scale building, it appears to be doing very, very well at the moment. You know, Queensland certainly have a big number of, of large scale type of aircraft up there, giant scale stuff. And there's a few names up there that um, build some, some some great stuff. Again, in New South Wales, there's a, a few names. Um, Phil Cran, who represented Australia at Top Guns, done very, very well um, with, with the models he built. So, Building um, and flying scale models is big. Actual competition, um, I'm probably more involved in Victoria and, and you know, I, I do a lot of competition organising and judging in Victoria. And um, it's 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 hard to, to measure. We'll, we'll have days where we'll have events where we'll get 20 people turn up to 25 where you can't get through as many rounds as you want and then you think, okay, the next one's going to be big too when you cater for it. And the next one, you know, you might have just as good a weather, but um, four or five will turn up. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. I think people's lives are busy. Um, They have kids, they have sporting activities. Everybody's got a personal life they need to cater for. And it's luck of the draw. So our our attitude now is we we run the events. We do our best to find out who's coming and encourage them to come and, and, um, try and make it enjoyable but at the same time as making it enjoyable keep that element of competition and the seriousness in it 
um, for the guys that are of a higher level or, or want to get to a higher level so they've got experience in it. Um, there's, you know, it's, I suppose it's like any competition where you're judged. A lot of people don't like to be judged um, and they take it personally rather than taking it as constructive criticism. And um, I've now changed our local events in Victoria that after the first round I'll get everybody together and, and have a little bit of a, a quick seminar on what different people had done wrong and and if they'd done it this particular way, how it would have changed their score dramatically. Um, that's been received very, very well. And, you know, that's the direction we'd like to head on a building front as well. We're sort of in the early stages of trying to put together um, some build nights and just to, just to help people along and let them know that this isn't personal, it's about improvement. Yeah, that sounds excellent. I, I really love that approach. I think... Uh, it's funny. There's, there's there's some people in the hobby here in Australia that think that competition can be bad. Like there's a club that I'm a member of that are just totally anti-competition because they think it just turns people into monsters. But from my experience, I see that you know, competition is not for everybody or competing is not for everybody. But yeah, it definitely, if you really want to improve your flying, if you want to improve your building, then it's a great way to do that. And it's not necessarily if you, you know trying to win. It's learning from people like yourself and passing on that experience, I think is so valuable. Yep. Yep. Absolutely right. Um, and, and I've seen the monsters that you're referring to. Um, it is a, a sad side of modeling. Um, I, I, I think that it's, it, it, it's achievable to have that balance of a passion to want to do well, but be accepting of of where you are in the pecking order at that point in time and working towards being better and you know there's there's a group of us here that um we critique each other help each other and we're very very enthusiastic of each other and and it's accepted that one guy might be better than the other but you know the other guy is always working to improve himself and and with the knowledge that the other guy is improving himself the 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 the, the next guy knows that he has to keep on his game because the um the field's catching up on him so but that's competition um if you don't want to do it don't do it but my suggestion is if if you don't want to do it don't get involved and then complain about it and the way it's done and how it's run and say it's not fair and you know, I've certainly seen a lot of people that only come because they want a trophy and when they don't get a trophy, they'll they'll snipe a shot at the event and um, try and pull it down. And and that's not fair on, on the guys that put, you know, years of hard work into competition. And I find the majority of competitions I go to now, I don't get a fly. I sit in a judge's seat from start to finish. And I don't enjoy that, but I feel I've got to put back into the hobby um, because those people put into me. Yeah, that's great. Now, let's just move on to have a look at that international c- c- competition career that you've had. How many times have you have you competed internationally? Well, I my first um, international comp was 1994 in Holland. Um, I was quite young, probably 23, 24. I then had a, a 10-year break. Um, I had family in between, never lost the passion for competing, but just the ability to afford to do it. And um, I then next went to Poland in 2004, Sweden in 2006. I missed 2008 through to a death in the family, um, 2010 back in Poland, 2012 in Spain, 
2014 in France, 2016 in Romania, 2018 uh, Switzerland. That's amazing. I, I, mm. I, I doubt you'd find somebody, another Australian, that's competed in so many sort of world championship events in flying. Oh, look, we have got him. Noel Whitehead, I think, is is equal to me in in um, international events. He's another um, very successful uh, scale modeler out here. Yeah, he's um, very good. He's got some beautiful planes. Yeah, yep. And uh, Switzerland, I, I saw the photos uh, on Facebook and stuff of the last World Champs, and I was just I, I could not believe the, the the scenery that you had at that flying field. Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, Switzerland was amazing. Um, I'd never – Switzerland had never been on my go-to list. I'd sort of driven into the country for dinner one night with a German friend and out again. But um, when we got to that location, um, breathtaking, and the photos and the videos just didn't do it justice. It was – you know, I'd, I'd be back there in a heartbeat. It was just gorgeous. And, and I suppose one thing I love about – um, scale era modeling is it's it's taken me to places in the world that I would not have chosen to go to. I've gone there because there was a competition there and I've realized that you know the the, the main tourist points aren't always the places to be. Um, and I could say that about every world championships I've been to, you know I've left the place thinking I'd love to come back here they, they, but that that um, that area of Switzerland um, just just gorgeous, yeah, beautiful. There is something great about uh, traveling internationally for your hobby. It's just, it takes on a different different feel. And I've been to China a couple of times judging aerobatic competition, and and it's just an amazing, amazing experience. So, but that that flying in Switzerland in the valley for anyone that hasn't seen the photos, basically they're flying in this valley with these mountain ranges, a bit like a scene out of The Sound of Music, even though Sound of Music was filmed in Austria, but these massive yep. mountain ranges. And and you're right, every photo of an aeroplane had this amazing backdrop, which made the photo yep. even better. So it was just, it was amazing. It's not a cheap exercise though, is it? Oh God, no. Um, no. And, um, you know, one, one of our team members, Noel Finlay, uh, he approached me in 2012 and said he wanted to to compete at the World Championships. Well, it might have been 2011, and he approached me for the 2012 World Champs in Spain. He actually sold a house to put himself in a position that he could take um, a year off work to build his aeroplane and and go. And fortunately for us, he's continued going. Um, just another champion aero modeler in, in Australia. Um, but that de- level of dedication you don't often see. The, the cost of, of going to the competition and competing, um, it's probably not the main sting. The sting comes with transporting our aircraft over there. Because of the weight of our aircraft, the size of them, the way they break down to keep them scale, um, you know, we're talking big boxes and we've now got into a world of, of air freighting our models around and, um, you know, that, that is really expensive and that hurts. And um, I've, I've, I know it could be a bit of tall poppy syndrome, but there's been a lot of criticism of, of teams that have gone and, you know, they're just going on a European holiday. Well, that's, we, yes, we make it a holiday because we spend so much money getting there. Um, and believe me, it's stressful. It's not, not enjoyable the way people may think it's fun and games and nuts and beers at the events. Um, you, you're at a competition of a high level. You you feel the weight of your country on your shoulders. Um, so you feel obligated to do well. And um, I think um, the holiday afterwards is well-deserved. I agree. I think it's 
because not only are you you know once you arrive with your aircraft you have to assemble them again and put the motors back on so it's not as if it's uh turn up put the batteries in fire the motor up and off we go thankfully the world of of um world championships has changed a little bit it used to be that you had 20 minutes to have practice flights before the event then you're straight into it and um we finally got through to the the european countries that we are we are completely disassembling our aeroplanes and in my case and 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 a couple of our team members that means de-rigging them so in one flight you can't put it back together get it trimmed the way it was flying before you left and and um start flying you just like you, you can't you're, you're at a disadvantage and and i think um from australia and i'm not putting down any of the european countries at all because this would apply to new zealand japan south africa brazil all of us that have to travel a long distance we've got to we've got to take 20 steps to compare to a european's one step you know they jump in a car and drive from country to country or on a ferry um whereas you know where we've had our model for three weeks prior to the event because it's got to be transported over we've then got to rebuild it over there we've got to retrim it plus the the pressure of competition it's bloody hard work yeah sounds like it now there is a model that you've been taking competing with for, for a few few years now um and it is your your pits now um if you've never seen david's pits it's, it's probably it's the best pits going around as far as i'm concerned especially in australia Tell us a bit about uh, this the pits that you've built and the history of building that plane. Okay. Um, well, as I said earlier, I, I'm a great believer if you want to do well, you attach yourself to the people that do well. And um, um, I, I had a look at Andreas Luthi, who's been many-time world champion, champion from Switzerland. I've got a lot of respect for the man. Um, when I first met him, he spoke very little English, so it was, you know, other than smile and nod, it was hard to have a, any communication with him, and he's not on Facebook or social media, so um, I just looked at what he did and how he did it, and I decided, firstly, the Australian attitude of every time there's a new world championships, let's build a new model, was wrong. I thought you need to you need to build the right model, and you need to stick with it for a number of years and improve on it. Um, I had a look at what he was flying, um, which was uh, he flies a, a Bucker um, Antares, which is a souped-up Jungmeister. Um, it's a biplane. Biplanes aren't ideal for, for competition for different reasons, crosswinds and, and weathers, that type of thing. But um, I, I didn't want to build... I was thinking of building a, a Bucky Jungweiss and I thought, no, it's too similar. I want to do something different. So I don't love pit specials, believe it or not. Um, but I looked at it from the point of view that I was I was building a tool that was going to get me what I wanted. I wasn't building something I loved. Um, and I made the other decision that it had to be something I could see, touch, measure, um, do all the things I needed to do to make it accurate as possible because when it comes down to it, if you haven't got a good static score, you haven't got a chance. And and you can't get a good static score if you're building an aircraft and then finding a colour scheme and painting it and you've never seen the, the real one. So um, after a bit of thinking, a bit of hunting around, I, st- I did start to look at pitch specials because I knew that there were a number of them in Australia and I'd be able to get to them. Um I don't like flying flat manoeuvres. I like flying more aerobatic type manoeuvres. So 
that suited the pits. Um, and then I, I decided I didn't want to go for a modern day sort of C model pits. It hasn't got as much surface detail on it and it flies a higher level of aerobatics. So I also discovered that the S2 models, which is the twin seaters, had a longer fuselage moment and um, and was slightly bigger wingspan. So that directed me to an early two-seat model pits, which was the S2A. Um, I was hunting around Australia for an S2A and then found out by sheer fluke there was one in my backyard at Moorabbin Airport. And... Um, I ended up, during the course of this time, I, I wrote to Aviat Pitts to see if I could get their drawings for the full-size aircraft because I knew Pitt Special did home builds. Um, to my disappointment, the S2A was the only one that they didn't release the plans and they didn't want to give them to me because of copyright reasons. I was scared I was going to build one. Um, after a lot of negotiation, I convinced them that I was a modeler and they agreed to send me elements of the drawings that I require, but not the full set of drawings. Um, I also discovered an ex-Pitts um, test pilot from the States, David Pilkington, lived in um, Victoria and operated a training school out of Moorabbin Airport. So I got in touch with David, went down, saw the pits for the first time, um, decided it was what I was going to do. Um, it was pitch at S2A VHSZD and... Um, while I was measuring it, David said to me, you'll have to be quick. Someone's going up in it. And um, 20 minutes later, he said, right, empty your pockets and get in. And he took me up for a fly. I didn't know it was me, but he'd already decided. Um, and that sold me on it. So I, I, it was 2006 I decided I was going to do the pits. I spent two years researching it and getting the information I thought was enough information to start building it. Um and then I would have started building it around 2008 and I first competed with it in 2010 and I think I placed fourth. I, I got pipped at the post by another uh, ex-world champion, Peter McDermott, who's an exceptional modeler. Um, but I did very well and, and that started the ball rolling of my theory of, right, let's not change aeroplane now, let's start improving it. So after the event, I approached the judges, asked them, everything they could remember that they'd seen that was wrong with it. And um, I made a habit of that over the next few championships. And um, I kind of laugh because people say to me, oh, you're taking the pits again. Or, yeah, I'm taking the pits again, but it's not the same pits I took last year or the year before or the year before. Um, it's continually changing. And um, in 2014, it paid off. Um, I won static and I placed third overall and uh, Australia placed second as a team. So we all got on the podium and then it's been onwards and upwards since there. And, um, the, you know, 2018 in Switzerland was probably our, our greatest hurrah. We, we won as a team. Um, um, I think I was, I was third in static just by a few points, which doesn't worry me too much. It's the top end you want to be at. And, um, Unfortunately for me, I was having engine trouble and had a dead stick in the second round, but just looking at the scores and averages, I was well on the way to doing well. But I think I've reached a point in my scar modelling where um, I'm so proud of Australia and Australia's team that my own personal achievements don't matter so much. I've, I feel like I've done enough. Um, I'll always be competitive, um, but um, I'm in a happy place. 
Yeah. Now, tell us a bit about um, some of the refinements you've been doing to that model. Because I'm really interested to understand. You know, you, you take it to a world champs. You learn from the judges what you need to do. What What do some of those refinements look like over the years? Okay. Well, to to set the scene to begin with, I I constructed the aircraft off of full set of um, full size aircraft plans. So I didn't use what you would imagine as a modelling plan, which is a very difficult experience for me. Um, the model the 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 pits that I built, it's an S2A, but it's had some S2C modifications on it. And that's where being able to go to the airport and see it and measure it and touch it helped me enormously. So I was able to measure up those different changes and um, I learned to use AutoCAD. So I drew it all up on AutoCAD. And um, so my, my first competition in 2010 was a benchmark. And um, to begin with, it was, and it's, you know, even a, any modeler, there's, there's things that are hitting you in the face and you don't see them after building something for so long and so intensely. Um, so there'd be little things like a grill was a little bit too small or this or that. And, um, you know, I'd go back and revisit it. And, and you know, in some occasions, uh, I just wouldn't agree. Uh, it, it would be a visual thing um, because they're pretty much judging from photographs. Um, on other occasions, they'd be right. And when I'd look at it, I'd miscalculate it or measured from the wrong line or a datum point. Um, so there were there were little things involved. And um, the other thing about that pits is uh, pits flies great, but it's a pig to take off. It's a pig to land. Um, and, you know, I've built an early S2A, which um, compared to the, the S2Cs, which are high power, this this had power, but not high powered. So it doesn't do blistering manoeuvres, does aerobatic manoeuvres. Um, you know, and there's, there was a, right, I'll, I'll stay on topic. So from, from a build point of view, um, I, after I got to the point where I was completely happy with my static outline and my, you know, my colour and markings and, and everything there, which I felt I achieved that point when I won um, in 2014, won static. Um, I, I looked at the flying and I thought, okay, if I'm going to stay near the top, I've got to, I've got to stay competitive. What more can I do with this aeroplane? And the biggest thing for me was the weight. I'd always been about 20 grams under the weight limit. And um, I'd had a theory in my head and I was too scared to try it. And that was put a smaller engine in it, work real hard on reducing the weight, improve the wing loading and hopefully come out the other end with an aircraft that flew better, had equal the pull through the air, um, but was lighter and there was more margin for me between um, our maximum weight limit. So I had a DA120 in it at that stage, um, and that was a, another problem. Such a big engine in in a in, in that size of airframe was very talky. So I took out the 120. I put a DA70 in it. Um, did a number of other changes, moved things around, and um, I got the model down about three kilograms in weight, which was, you know, in modelling terms, is pretty that's, enormous. That's massive. And it transformed the way it flew straight away and the other fear i had and I, and i stumbled upon this was the cg and i thought my cg was right and in taking all the weight out most of it came from the front so the first flight i knew that the weight had changed a lot 
and I was very nervous about it being tail heavy. And I, all I discovered was I'd actually been massively nose heavy, which also helped the transformation in the flying. Um, with, a, with a normal aircraft, there's a, a rule of thumb. You, you take off, you put your power up, you, you fly 45 degrees upwards, roll over on the back. And if it bellies out, it's tail heavy. If it pulls over too fast, it's nose heavy. If it gently comes over, it's about right. The problem with the pits and the incidence on the wings, it doesn't matter where your CG is, when you do that manoeuvre, it always bellies out, which suggests it's tail heavy. So I was scared, always scared of it being tail heavy when, in fact, I was actually nose heavy. So the biggest change I made to the model was a weight reduction, a change of engine, and then um, that weight reduction um, involved making new components again um, to make them lighter, new cowlings, wheel spats, different bits and pieces. So while I was making those, um, I was sort of putting, because I was working on a small item, I was putting the microscope on it on, you know, does it need improvement for a start? And if it does, how do I make it better? You know, let's really put it on the microscope here. Um, so I did that and um Another thing, I'd, a rule of thumb in scale is don't put too many photos in your documentation because the judges will see things you don't want them to see. Well, I decided that, that was rubbish and I wanted to be able to beat my chest and say this is as accurate as you're going to get. So I put as many photos in as I could to prove how accurate it was, not do the opposite, and that paid off for me as well. Um, I... I, I just think having the ability to see the full size and touch it and um, measure it up put me in a position where I could document it to my heart's content just to demonstrate that I'd got it right. Um, so, you know, the, the, the pits I flew in 2010 was three-odd kilograms heavier. Um, different bits and pieces on it were were not quite right and um over time i've refined that and i've spent a hell of a lot of time working on the ultimate um propeller for it um desert aircraft australia can attest to that i'm sure i've made the millionaires out of the amount of carbon fiber props i've bought but you know it's it's for a purpose yeah no it's amazing um really you can see the the commitment you've got to improvement which you know, if you are going to compete, you have to have that attitude. Now, at the moment, you know, we're all shut down because of the, the coronavirus issue. A lot of scale comps have been cancelled. I think the World Champs have been cancelled this year, is it correct? They've been postponed. postponed. We're quite fortunate, yeah, postponed to next year. Yeah, postponed to next year. Uh, yep. Is your plan to go back and uh, take the pits? Yep, yep. I um, You've got to ask yourself, why would you change aeroplanes when you're staticking in the top three, well, top five? Um, I am working on a new aircraft. I have been for a long, long time. Um, but I don't believe my pits has had its last hurrah. I, I want to tick the box that I've been to an event where I'm happy with the static and I'm happy with the flying. And when I've done both of those, I'll probably retire it. I, I would have done it at Switzerland had I not had an engine trouble and a dead stick. I think it would have got me where I wanted to be. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to one more and, um, and, and then I'll probably look at something different. Now, you mentioned that you're working on another model. What yes. have you currently got on your workbench at the moment? Okay, well, the, um, I went to 2004 and 2006 World Championships with a, a twin-seat vampire. Um, 
And just before I started building the pits, I was actually starting to build a new vampire, but weight limits had changed and the world was going bigger. So I decided to build, start from scratch and build a bigger one because I already had the moulds for the smaller one. And um, that's what I'm still working on now. And, you know, believe it or not, even as of Friday of last week, I was I was on AutoCAD and, and, and refining drawings and tweaking bits and pieces. So I'm, I'm building a, a De Havilland T35 twin seat uh, vampire and that will be my next F4C model uh, at one-fifth scale, which is about 2.3 metre wingspan. What's that? What mode is going to be in that? Um, I will probably put a, a King Tech 85 in it. Um, my small one had a PST 60 in it, 6 kilo. I'm a great believer of not overpowering something because if you overpower it, you've got to carry more fuel. If you've got to carry more fuel, it's a heavier wing loading. Um, I like to keep the wing loading down. It's the key to a successful flying aeroplane. Um, I've I purchased a ARF Durjets Vampire, which is the same size as the one I'm building, basically, except it's a single seat. And I originally had a 120 in it, flew fantastic, had more than enough power, and I thought, all right, let's experiment here. So I got a King Tech 85, put that in it, took a lot of weight out, took out about three kilos in fuel weight to begin with, and um, it's equally as powerful, does all the manoeuvres the same, but it's got a much, much lighter wing loading, and it's well under what would be our weight limit. So um at this stage my intention would be a king tech 85 which is eight and eight, eight and a half kilos of thrust and if that doesn't do the job it would be a king tech uh, 100 which would be um 10 kilos of thrust yeah i agree with you in regards to that uh overpowering situation it amazes me how many models i, I remember reading magazines over the years and and they'd be testing an airplane with a nitro engine or something and and they'd always, you know, be designed for a 46 size and they go, oh, I'd put a 55 in it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. why? And, and actually, I was, I've, I've had chats with um, the guys out at um, Extreme Flight, yep. like all the aerobatic models, and they say the same thing. Said, People want to uh, put a bigger engine then carry more batteries or more fuel or whatever. And the whole design of the airplane then changes all the, the, the wing loading changes and it changes the Absolutely. aircraft. So, but it, you know what it's like, David. You can tell yeah. other people this over and over again and they still think, no, 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 you need to have a bigger engine. Yeah, and, and if you're talking an IC plane, um, you know, you've got a torque reaction because that more power, more power means a bigger prop, bigger prop on a smaller aeroplane creates torque, you know, and you, you just, yes, you get you get more power, but you create a domino effect of other problems. Um, and the biggest problem I see with big turbines in jets is the idle. You, they can't slow them up to land because, you know, even if it's a light aircraft and, and you're talking about a, a 120 versus an 85 at idle, there's there's enough um, thrust at idle on a 120 to make an aeroplane not stop for landing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Anyway, that that's just me. It's their own, but that's my view on it. No, I'm following your lead. I've just I've actually got a turbine, a Viper jet with a with a the two meter Viper jet with a with a hundred in it. And there's other people that are putting one twenties and one forties and even I know people are putting like one sixties into some of these smaller jets and I think, well, what's the point? <laughs> you know, what's yeah. the point? And I and you know what, I would rather have, you know, a six to eight minute flight time than a four minute flight time because I, you know, put a bigger motor yeah. in it. So most full cross size air craft you know especially older vintage jets did not have a one-to-one -one thrust ratio 
So I don't see why we need one. You know, yeah. a lot of older style jets, they flew off the wing. They didn't fly off the power. Um, certainly, you know, a, a, an F-35 or something like that. Yeah, it's a different story. But, you know, Cougars, Panthers, Vampires, Sabres, F-100s, all of those, um, those classic jets that look fantastic, um, they, they flew on their wing. Now, speaking of planes... You've yes. owned a lot of different planes, and I've seen you fly all sorts of things from turbines to you know your pits, of course, and lots yep. of other aircraft. Uh, over all your years of flying, what has been your favourite uh, plane? <laughs> wow. <clears throat> um, I must say, and it might, uh, this might be because I only had it for a short time, but I had an F-14 Tomcat and I loved it. Um, so F-14 Tomcat, but I'm I'm so passionate about aviation. I, I love World War II. I love jets. Um, you know, depending on what day of the week it is, you've only got to put a picture in front of me for a few seconds and I start to fall in love with it. And I've got it built in my head in a matter of seconds. So I've got to watch myself. But, um, yeah, right, right here and now, probably – the thing that would pop into my head would be maybe an F-14 or an F uh, or a, a, a Hellcat a Fox. I don't know. I, I don't have a favourite. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, something with a fixed wing, mate. That's my favourite. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, how often are you getting out flying nowadays? Um, oh, look, <laughs> with this virus issue, not at all. All our fields are closed. Um, but putting that aside, I, I would get out at least once a week. Um, I try to make a point of flying once a week and, you know, leading into a world championships, I'll get out. Um, I try and get out on the weekend and a couple of times during the week. Um, I'll really ramp it up when we're getting close to going away. And when, when you're flying, are you flying to practice for your scale comps or is it just generally for fun or a bit of both? Um, look, I must admit, I enjoy the down year in between a world championships and, and in some respects, I'm really enjoying the fact it's been postponed because I've realised that I've missed a lot of modelling because I've been so focused on a world champs. So, you know, I would normally have a down year and then by well, – I'd come back from a world champs, work out what tweaks I needed to do to the model, knock them over, and then, you know, by about December, might have a bit of a fly with the competition model and then by January, I'm into it and I'm practising right up until we go away. Um, so at the moment, I'm in, you know, putting aside the fact we're all stuck at home, I'm enjoying, really enjoying flying a little bit of my F3A model, my jets, um, my scale aerobatic models. Um, we, we were at the point where we were getting into our practice, so flying my pits as well, but I'm also really enjoying um, you know, we've got a, a youngster on our F4H team now, um, Belent Banco, and I've enjoyed, you know, watching his journey and, and how quickly young kids pick it up. And um, my wife, Melissa, is um, she's flying as a female competitor on the F4H team, so she's in the shed with me now building her aeroplane, and we got her a, an ARF version of it to practice with. So it's um, the time at the field has become more enjoyable other than just getting out and having a fly. But I, I will admit, I go to the flying field to try and relax and by the end of the day, I find I'm totally wrecked because I've been on my feet all day. All I do is go to the runway and back and I fly my bum off. I don't seem to know how to 
put the transmitter down, but it's just me. <laughs> well, it's a great feeling. I love it being able to go for a fly, spend a day at the field, and and really it changes changes my mood. You know, between all the work commitments and everything. So oh, absolutely. Now, if, if, let's assume that we're going to be back flying the next couple of months after this coronavirus issue. Where, what events have you got lined up to bring some of your models out to? Um, uh, look, the Monte Terrell, which is a, uh, an event at Pandarks, was postponed. I, that that will be on the agenda. Um, if we make it in time, one of our biggest Victorian competitions for the year is on the Queen's Birthday weekend in Shepparton. Um, it's called the Vic Scar Trophy, so you know, hundred percent, I'd be at that one. Um, um, we we have a, a competition. We have one competition a month in Victoria as far as scale comps go, and we run um, F4C, F4H, and flying only. So there's an option of you know for any model that someone would want to bring along, um, and then there's the you know the club scale days and fun fly things that go around like this um, September Shepparton event. Uh, I'd like to be at that. I've I've got a new jet that's just come off the drawing board um, that I hope I'll debut there. Um, so um, pl- there'll be plenty on. Yeah, there always is. Now, David, look, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And I've, I've learned a lot about you now. And um, it's actually a, a really good story. And, and to, to see someone that's you know out there building model aircraft to an, a high level and getting so much enjoyment out of it, it's actually very inspiring for a lot of other people. And, and the work that you're doing also with the youngsters as well in, in boosting them. So... Well done, David, and I can't wait to see you out the field again and uh, go for a fly. Uh, most definitely, mate, and thank you. Happy to share. Thanks, David. As we always do with every episode of the Flat Out RC podcast, we like to showcase a product. Now, I'm going to give you something different, and my friends are going to laugh because when they hear what I'm talking about, they're going to think I'm an idiot. And some of you may think I'm an idiot, and a lot of people have laughed at me about it. But what I want to talk to you about is radio control paramotors. That's right. Those, you know what a paraglider looks like? Like, you know, people jump off cliffs and it looks like they're on, they've got a kite above them. That kind of thing. But paramotors have an engine on the back. They have your, you know, you carry this big frame and, and the engine spins around and keeps you up in the air and you've got this big kite thing above you. Now, a few years back, I'm talking about oh, at least two years now, I've been watching a guy on YouTube called Tucker Gott. Now, Tucker Gott is a, is a full-size paramotor pilot, and he's amazing. He does really good YouTube videos, uh, you know, constantly putting out new content, and he's a great pilot. And it, it's I love adventure, and watching him is like going on an adventure. So it got me thinking. It was like Christmas. Oh, yeah, it was, nice. it was probably three years ago now, actually. And it was around Christmas time. And, you know, at Christmas time, we just stare at the internet because we've got nothing else to do besides eat and do all that kind of thing. So anyway... I got uh, onto Tucker Gott and I was watching his videos and was really enjoying them. Then I thought, wait a second, can you get a radio control paramotor? And it turns out you can. And uh, there were basically two brands that made some. Hyperion made some. And then this other French brand called Opal Paramodels. Now, Opal Paramodels was the one that I, I went to and had a look at and because these things looked unbelievable. They literally are making paramotors that look like the real thing the quality is just amazing so i reached out to them and i said hey really interested to do a review of one of your models 
And look, as is the case, everyone thinks that I got stuff for free all the time for the Flat Out RC magazine. It's not true. I had to pay. They gave me a discount, but I still had to pay. And it cost me a fair bit of money to get them from France to Australia. So I got uh, a couple of uh, wings, as they call it, and um, one frame and a pilot. So basically the way these paramotors work is they're very, very easy to follow because they're pretty much two-channel control. So you've got a motor on the back, an electric motor. You've got a pilot that sits in a frame and the pilot's arms move up and down. And when they move up and down, they're pulling on the, the, the brake lines that make the, 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 the wing steer. And so really your controls are only throttle and aileron. It's you know, Basically, that's it, that you use power to go up and down and then you use the left and right aileron stick for controlling the arms to, to steer. Now, these things aren't small. They do have some smaller ones. They've got actually, you know, some some sort of little backyard flying paramotor kind of models, opal paramotors this is, this is, right up to five meter plus wingspan kind of stuff. So we're talking about some pretty giant scale wings. I ended up with one, the biggest one that I got was a three meter wing. And that's when it's laid flat. Uh, and then it, when it's arced in the flying position, it's about 1.8, I think it is, or 1.9 meters um, across. So it's not a small thing. So you have these line, you have these this wing above you. You connect it all up to the frame, and then the brake lines to the arms, the hands of the uh, the pilot that sits there that moves up and down. The pilots look great, and uh, there wasn't a lot of assembly. I had to assemble the frame. The wing comes already pre-made, which thank God because it's it's a work of art. There's a lot of a lot of design that goes into them, and a lot of stitching and material, etc. And they're really strong though, uh, made out of that parachute kind of material, you know, uh, kind of thing that ripstop almost kind of material. And so you just got to build the frame, which is an aluminium frame. Didn't take too long. Assemble the pilot, which again didn't take too long. Probably took me uh, one night, maybe one and a half nights, kind of thing. wasn't wasn't that hard at all. Put it all together, and then went off to the field. Now there's a little bit of setup uh, in getting the the the, the brake lines, the two steering lines at the right lengths. And uh, thanks to Apal Paramodels, they've got um, some uh, great YouTube channel with awesome videos. Uh, you got, even if you just want to see these things, Opal, O-P-A-L-E, Paramodels, get on to their website, their YouTube channel and have a look at their videos because they look amazing. So anyway, um, you, by the way, you can also just run them as pure gliders, as a paraglider. Just take the motor off and uh, attach the, um, the, the wing directly to the pilot and you're off. So a lot of their videos do show slope soaring as well with these uh, with these models. So anyway, go down the field, you gotta get your brake lines up, uh, watch the tutorial online and how to, how to test that. Uh, did all that and um, you've gotta fly them in pretty calm conditions. Uh, let's just say they're not gonna pe penetrate wind, they'll turn into a kite. And so you have gotta get these the ballast levels right. Uh, you can purchase ballast from them, you can make up your own. I ended up making my own ballast up I think the kit came with a little bit of ballast, but um, or did, I may have purchased a little bit of ballast one, but I made, my father-in-law actually had some sheet lead. I don't know why he had it, it for years ago. I think he made fishing sinkers or something from it. Anyway, and I made my own um, ballast up and they do give you a guide as to how much ballast you'll need for a certain uh, wing and wind conditions. So it's good to be able to weigh your model and get your ballast levels right. But let's put it this way. You don't have enough ballast, the thing's going to get go backwards. Uh, you just want it to be moving slowly forwards. It's not a high-speed thing. Anyway, let's assume you've got all that uh, set up. You've got your wing set up. You've got your ballast levels right. Uh, launching it is by hand. 
Uh, and if there, if there is a bit of technique involved, you've got to give it a, a really swift yank. And I find that it's got to be that swift yank. And then it comes up in the air, the kite inflates, or the, sorry, the wing inflates, and then you power off and it flies out of your hand. If there's a little bit of a, a, a headwind, that will help get the, the, the wing inflated. But um, I'll tell you what, the they're just, when it comes to flying them, not hard at all. The only difference is this, is that you need to, um, it's with an aeroplane, when we turn an aeroplane, say on the aileron, we sort of bump the aileron stick and then bring it back to center. With a paramotor, a radio control paramotor, it's a, a stick movement and hold, and then slowly. Everything has to be done very gently. No sharp throttle movements, no sharp steering inputs because it unsettles the whole glider. You can imagine it's like a, it's like a pendulum. You've got this heavy thing sitting underneath these two strings in this wing, and so it can really unsettle the whole airframe kind of thing. So you've got to be very, very gentle with and smooth with your controls. But as I said, you turn, and often uh, you know where we compensate with elevator movement in the turn, well, with a paramotor, you give it a little bit more uh, power through the turns. And you're basically pushing that aileron stick, holding it as it goes through the turn, and then releasing. So as you can imagine, when you're turning in a, in a full-size paraglider or paramotor, you're grabbing that brake line and you're holding it down through the turn, and then you're slowly releasing it back to back to center when you want to level off. So besides that, it's they they look so real. Like I think I could go to a scale comp. I really want to take it up to the Shepherd and Mammoth scale event because it would meet the criteria and it just looks real. The only thing is the conditions need to be right. I have been caught out where the thing just wants to go downwind because I didn't have enough ballast, but there's a couple of things I want to do. I really want to try the slope sawing with it because they look real. It's amazing how lifelike they look. But again, the Opal Paramodels uh, kits are excellent quality. We're talking about usage of carbon fiber in their pilot airframes and you know, molded arms and legs uh, for the uh, for the pilot, and you know, good, just good quality work. They're, they're not the cheapest, but the quality is just super, super high. So, by all means, you should check out the Opal Paramodels website. And look, wait a second, I've got my computer in front of me. I should have prepared this earlier. You can go and have a look at some of their um, kits. And and again, they've got different kits for different standards. You know, they've got some that are uh, more suited to uh, to beginners. Um, so the website, Opal, O-P-A-L-E hyphen paramodels, P-A-R-A-M-O-D-E-L-S.com. Opal hyphen paramodels.com. Um, check out the videos. Unbelievable. So there you have it. I've been telling all my friends, it's the future. Wait until you have a turn and you see these things go. You're all going to want one. So hopefully I can get mine out and shoot a video or something so you can actually see my one going. So that's it. Opal Paramodels, radio control paramotors, just like the real ones. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, that's all we have for you this week on the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks once again for listening. And don't forget, if you are enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to subscribe so you're always getting the update as to when they're out. So Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify and SoundCloud is where we're playing on. And don't forget our Facebook, our Instagram, and of course our YouTube channel. Got some more videos in the can ready to release for you. So get online, get onto YouTube and subscribe. And don't forget if you need some merchandise, if you're located in Australia, flatoutrc.com.au. That's the website to go to to buy the Flat Out RC merchandise. We've got a range of different, predominantly t-shirts with different slogans and things like that. You know, there's something for the guys that like the Bush Plains, the Fly Slow Collection, the Build Fly Fix range. Uh, the uh, I did one for um, the Go Around, you know, Go Around t-shirt. You know, you're telling people you've got to go around because you've mucked up another landing. So anyway, thanks for joining me. Big thank you to David Law for joining me in this episode. And stay tuned, a lot more to come from Flat Out RC. Thanks a lot. Eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde. A classic cliche, we're on the run. This is what we wait.